that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, February 10th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we're going to dig into the latest earnings report from Markel. We're going to take a bit of a deeper dive into REIT's Real Estate Investment Trust. We're going to look at some specific ideas in the space for you today. We've got some more of the last stock you bought and why. Of course, we have our ones to watch this week. And of course, as with most weeks, I've got my man, Matt Frankel, Certified Financial Planner, joining me. Via the magic of Skype. Matt, you're back in Columbia this week. How's everything going? Pretty good. Yeah, back in Columbia this week and next week this time I will be right where you are. That's Actually, right. Actually, probably the seat next probably the seat next to you. That'd be weird if I was exactly where you are. Well, you know, we'll we'll just take it one at a time there, Matt. But we got some <laughs> good got some good interviews lined up for next week. I'm really excited about that. We're not gonna we're not gonna let anybody we're not gonna tell anybody what the interviews are, who the interviews are. Okay, you gotta keep some secrets, but I do think that our listeners will be very excited about these interviews we have lined up. and uh, So, yeah, I'm excited to see you again, man. Looking forward to that. Uh, let's dig into Markel's results here real quick. Markel released earnings last week. And, Matt, you and I got a message on Twitter from Warren Kiesel. He asked, he said, hey, guys, love the podcast. Thanks for your great work. Can you please, please, two pleases, Matt, can you please, please take a deeper look at Markel on an upcoming episode? They mentioned a second successive year of higher catastrophic losses. Should shareholders be concerned? Thanks, Warren Kiesel. Warren, your wish is our command. We're going to take a look at Markel here today. First thing, uh, this is a company that I, I still own shares in. Matt, do you own shares of Markel? I do actually. After this earnings pop, I think it's my biggest holding. It's between that and Apple, but I I think that put it over the top. All right. Well, this is coming from a couple of guys who own the stock, a couple of guys who like the stock, and continue to recommend it here at the Fool. Uh, been one that we've we paid a lot of attention to here over the years. Um, let's go ahead and take a look at the quarter. Really, I should say, let's take a look at the year uh, because they tend to Markel management. I, one thing I really like is when you get their fourth quarter report, it really focuses on the year and not the quarter. And I think that is just, I mean, that 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 tells you a lot about the management team and their focus anyway. But it was a big week. The stock was up over 11% last week, um, and all of that came really after this earnings release. Uh, but to, to Warren's question there regarding catastrophic losses, I mean, we can focus on the good and the bad, but what stood out to you in the quarter, Matt? Well, the catastrophic losses, first of all, come from the company's uh, reinsurance division. Uh, Markel, as you know, the primary function of the business is an insurance company, and it has substantial operations in both regular property casualty insurance as well as reinsurance, which you could think of as kind of insurance for insurance companies. As in, if a storm, a bad storm comes and it kind of limits, an insurance company will purchase reinsurance to kind of limit their loss possibility. Sure. So, in that sense, yes, yes, Markel did have a ton of reinsurance losses. I think their combined ratio is was 120% reinsurance for the quarter, um, which means that they actually lost $20 for every $100 in premium. Um, but when combined with the excellent results from the rest of their insurance business, they actually ran a 93% combined ratio, which means they had a 7% underwriting profit, which is awesome for right. an insurance company. Yeah, Insurance companies generally want to break even on on the underwriting, 
and make money by their investments. So if an insurance company can make 7% on underwriting and then have money to invest, you know, it's a, it's a big win. So reinsurance, it was, I, I don't want to say ugly, but it wasn't a high point for Mark Hill, but it kind of, it balanced out with the rest of their business and their, the year actually looked really good from an insurance perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's the nature of insurance, right? I mean, this is ultimately a business that's based on on losses on on damages on on uh, helping make people whole and that costs money um, but but to your point there in regard to breaking even on the insurance operations so that they can really shine on the investment side I think that's you know whenever I look at Markel's results I mean that you, you go in and you look at the, really the three drivers of the business what they call the operating engines of the business and that is the insurance business their investments and also their ventures business and the Markel ventures business I think just is uh, it's a really neat one it's it's still fairly young but it's grown considerably through the years and um, you know one thing I wanted to call out, uh, because to me, this was this was the the part that stood out to me in in the earnings call. And the main reason is because it it really lines up with the way we invest here. I mean, it encapsulates foolish investing philosophy to the core. And it was this passage in in the beginning of the call where uh, they they talked about looking over the last ten years, taking a look at a ten year window of this business, and and looking at what they've done. In the past ten years, since two thousand and nine, and just to put some numbers around this, they they talk about the fact that uh, the total revenues of Markel back in two thousand and nine were two billion dollars. In two thousand and nineteen, they were nine point five billion dollars. And of that two billion dollars ten years ago, the earned premiums for their insurance operations were one point eight billion dollars. In two thousand and nineteen, that number was five billion dollars. Ten years ago, the recurring interest and dividend portion of their investment returns. We're about $250 million. In 2019, that number was $450 million. And then finally, looking at that Markel Venture side of the business, going back to 2009, Markel Ventures produced revenue of $86 million. And in 2019, that number was $2 billion. So I think that gives you a good window into not only how this management company, this management team thinks about the business in such long time periods. But it also really shows that when you do that, you can bring some great results down to the bottom line there. And you look at any any stretch of time for this for this stock, I mean it's just it's been a good one to own. You have you have some periods where it sort of lulls and it maybe even lags the market, but that's that's not really the point in investing in a company like this. It's really uh, we call it that baby Berkshire for a reason. You invest in it so you can own it for a really long period of time and and given Markel's size today is still fairly small, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of growth still to be had there from this company. Yeah, and you got to realize that, well, over that past 10 year period, just those numbers you said, their investment division has kind of grown tremendously. Um, it was barely a drop in the bucket 10 years ago. But having said that, they're still getting their the majority of their portfolio or their, their revenue, rather, from insurance. Yeah. So yeah. the investment division is still in its very early stages. I think Berkshire the, Berkshire hasn't gotten the majority of its revenue from insurance in a long time. Right. Because um, uh, over time, the investment division kind of, or the investment activities kind of take over. But we haven't seen that yet with Markel. They're, they're still in the very early innings. I'd call them like a 1975 Berkshire. Yeah. And I mean, that that's kind of that, that's a little bit of the magic of compounding, right? I mean, you, you see that. 
you hit a point in time where that compounding really starts to take over. And I mean, we probably just haven't really gotten to that point with Markel, at least as it compares to something like a Berkshire Hathaway. But you scroll through their investment holdings. I mean, some of the companies that they own. That's one of the things I like about Tom Gaynor, the co-CEO of the company. He's he's very forward-looking. We're Buffett Munger tended to not really kind of eschewed tech. Gate Gaynor seems to really embrace it. He kind of gets it, and so you see them owning companies like Amazon and Facebook and Alphabet in their portfolio. Which I just I think that's I think that's so important. Important for investment portfolios over the course of these next five and ten years, because those are the companies that really are dominating not only our lives, but but in many cases the economy as well. Yeah, no, I mean it's worth mentioning also the ventures division is really not capable of making big acquisitions yet, but that won't be the case forever. I I could see them building kind of a how Berkshire's built the portfolio of kind of like stable, steady businesses, but in like kind of a tech focused way. Um, so Markel could really be like could truly be the the Berkshire for the 21st century. I, I totally agree. That's why I own the stock and I, I've added to it recently. Um, yeah, I mean that Markel Ventures that just is amazing to me. In 10 years, well, I remember vividly when they started this business. It was kind of like okay, well maybe this could lead to something. 86 million dollars in revenue in 2009. $2 billion, over $2 billion in 2019. Just goes to show you the effort they've put into it. And it is it is having a material impact on the business today. And we can only uh, assume that it is going to continue to be a point of focus for the business, uh, for, for management going forward. So I just, I, there's a lot to be excited about here. I, I certainly appreciate and understand Warren's concern there on the cat side, but um, seems to me to be just one part of. Uh, a very big picture, and overwhelmingly, everything seems to be headed in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. I have no plans to even trim my holdings anytime soon, and I wouldn't be surprised to see my position grow uh, if, if I add to it. I think I'll add to it more over the next year or so. Maybe we'll have a new, what's the last stock you bought and why for, for uh, me and you, Matt? Maybe we'll have something to report there of Markel. We see a little bit of an opportunistic window. <laughs> Maybe so. Well, I've been on, I've been on a buying drought lately, so let's see. we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Me too. Well, let's pivot over to this uh, REITs discussion because this is one I was really excited to be able to jump into today with you. Because uh, I mean, you're a real estate guy with all the work you're doing with Million Acres and Mogul, and I mean, I talk to Matty Argersinger all the time. The stuff that you guys are doing is really, uh, really cool. And and um, this report that you all recently published focuses on. Uh, partly at least, this this Bloomberg report from back in 2017, entitled America's Retail Apocalypse. And uh, I, I, I remember reading that report and thinking, wow, there was some stark data in there that, that really uh, made you wonder about the future of retail. Um, this report that you all uh, put out focuses on uh, the real estate side of that, of that retail apocalypse. And, and while there are some Problems out there, I guess you could say, some headwinds. Uh, there are also some opportunities, and, and so we want to dig into some of those opportunities. But first, for listeners, real quick, can you just remind our listeners what a REIT is and why they can make good investments? Sure. Uh, REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. Um, it's a special type of company meant to own real estate. It gets a nice little tax advantage um, as long as it distributes most of its income to shareholders. It doesn't pay any corporate taxes, so it kind of works like a LLC or an S corp, like a like a pass through corporation for real estate. And it gives everyday investors the chance to invest in property types that they normally wouldn't be able to, like shopping malls, office buildings, apartments, 
Um, so it's just a really nice kind of a kind of a mutual. Think of it as a mutual fund for real estate with a nice tax benefit. Okay, so uh, the the report that you guys wrote digs it digs into four particular uh, different real estate investment trust opportunities. So we wanted to just take a few minutes uh, with each company there, with each with each REIT, uh, give you a, a chance to talk a little bit about them and, and uh, uh, tell tell our listeners why you like them. So first up is EPR Properties. The ticker on that is EPR. This is a, a REIT that is focused on entertainment properties, right? Right. Uh, entertainment is one of the areas of of retail that really isn't disruptable by e-commerce. Um, EPR invests in a variety of properties. Their biggest component right now is uh, Megaplex movie theaters. If you think these newer movie theaters with the, you know, the comfy seats and more food than than you would typically find in a movie theater, things like that. Um, so that's one of them. They also, uh, Top Golf is a big tenant of theirs. If anyone's been to a Top Golf, it's a whole lot of fun and well, yeah, really a Top high Golf- end. We saw recently Top Golf is actually looking to IPO. I think here not too terribly uh, far down the road, aren't they? They are, which would likely lead to a period of faster growth after the IPO and the need for more properties. So that's, that'd be a nice catalyst for EPR too. Well, hey now, um, <laughs> they they own a bunch of water parks, uh, ski resorts, things like that. Things that um, really <laughs> you can't be replicated from Amazon or any other internet retailer so entertainment is one of the most you know the i don't want to say safest but definitely one of the most e-commerce resistant types of real estate um and epr is a great way to play it because it's kind of been beaten down a little bit thanks to the retail weakness in general yeah i do like that idea i mean i think entertainment to me is so so far reaching these days and i mean whether you're streaming something on your phone or uh you know going to a dave and busters or or, or a top golf for that matter um i mean i, I think you're right in, in most cases unless you're streaming content on your phone you're probably going to need to go somewhere for that entertainment and so to see um a, a company out there focused on that in particular i mean that i i think that's also it's it's a Beyond just e-commerce, I think just a resilient market. I think in good times and in bad. I mean, folks are looking for some form of entertainment, one way or the other. Sure. I mean, people are going to obviously trim back their spending on on luxuries in bad times, but you know, I mean, people still have need to occupy their time. No one's just going to sit at home. So, yeah, entertainment a is a pretty resilient property type. The, the entertainment business is one of the most recession resistant types of businesses out there, just because it's always in demand. Well, we'll take a look at that, and we'll uh, keep an eye on the uh, Top Golf IPO. That'll be something. Certainly, I'm I'm interested in just the Top Golf IPO alone, but I'd, I'd be also be fascinated to see how that um, could potentially impact EPR. Okay, let's move over to the next name in the space here in the report: Seritage Growth Properties. Uh, this is ticker SRG. Uh, tell the listeners what you like about Seritage Growth Properties, Matt. Well. Not only is it a Buffett REIT, um, I'll get to that in a second, but it's kind of an under-the-radar retail name, and it's a unique approach to real estate. Uh, Saratosh was created specifically to buy a portfolio of Sears properties. Now, nobody wants to own a Sears property, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe not in its Sears form, but there's got to be some value there, right? 
Sears doesn't even want to own Sears properties. That's why they sold it. That's why they sold them to Saratage. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, go on. Um, so the point is to as these properties, Sears, you know, as we all know, went bankrupt. Um, as Sears closed the stores and things like that over time, Saratage was created to take these spaces, which are often massive retail spaces in excellent areas. Because if you remember back in the 70s and 80s, Sears was the retailer. Um, yeah. So Sears were built in top-notch locations. So now you can have, you know, redeveloped modern retail assets in top-notch locations. You know, Saratage is getting five times the rent for its uh, renovated properties as it as they were um, to start with. And it's got some pretty impressive backers, notably Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway is the lender to Saratage. They provided them with a $2 billion credit line to to complete their renovations. That's um, such a Buffett, that's such a Buffett thing to do, man. I mean, he just he's he's got that move down, doesn't he? Right. And on on and in addition to that, this is kind of less publicized. Warren Buffett himself owns Saratage in his personal portfolio and he's the company's largest shareholder. Um which that's less publicized. It's listed in their um annual report. Buffett owns more than 5% of the company. So, it's a backed by some pretty impressive names. And it's under the radar now because, one, it doesn't pay a dividend. They're choosing to reinvest all their capital back into growth. They're not making a profit, so they don't have to pay out money to shareholders. And it just has a whole lot going for it. And they have they've still have mo- the majority of their properties they haven't touched yet. So there, this is a lot of opportunity to, to create value out of essentially nearly worthless properties as in terms of rentability. So, I mean, no one wants to re-rent a Sears as is. So now they're going to create these, and they have the opportunity to add square footage, add density to some of these developments, um, just because there's a lot of unused land around a lot of Sears properties. So it's just a really great long-term growth opportunity. This is probably the, I'd say the most long-term looking of all of them in in the sense that they're not going to make a ton of money overnight, but there's a ton of value to be created in this portfolio and the market's really overlooking it, I think. Well, I definitely don't just do whatever Warren Buffett does, but anything he does uh, makes me take note. And so I think investors would be wise uh, to certainly take a look at Saratage and try to understand better what he sees in it, because clearly he sees something. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Simon Property Group, the third name in this report, ticker SPG. Simon is an interesting company because it has a very uh, heavy exposure to malls, isn't that right? Right, I, and I've mentioned Simon on the show before. Simon's one of the biggest uh, REITs of any kind in the market. Um, they have something like a forty billion dollar market cap. They have a big portfolio of some of the most valuable shopping malls in the world. They own the Mills brand name. If you live near any of the Mills properties, I know uh, there's one in Baltimore, um, up by by HQ. But there's a oh, bunch yeah, yeah. all over the country. Um, in in Vegas, they have some of the biggest malls on the Strip. <clears throat> the the Forum Shops at Caesars are a Simon property, uh, just to name one example. Um, and they also are in the outlet mall business. They have the Premium Outlets brand name. So anywhere you see a, a Premium Outlets property, that's a Simon property. Um, Simon's ca- approach is similar to Saratage in the sense that, <clears throat> excuse me, that they want to have mixed-use spaces. They want to modernize the retail experience, have non-retail elements in there, say offices, hotels. A lot of Simon's malls have hotels right in the mall. Um, apartment buildings. Um, the one in Baltimore has a casino attached to it. 
Um, so just to kind of br- bring foot traffic in, make them places people want to go to, even if they can buy the products online, having a shopping destination creates an experience, which is kind of what we were saying with EPR, that it becomes an experiential thing. And that in a, that itself can kind of withstand the test of time. And one of the most interesting things about Simon recently is that while you're seeing all these, you know, little strip malls and retailers going out of business, losing sales, things like that, the average Simon retailer actually sold 4% more in 2019 than they did the year before. Oh, so wow. sales are actually go- sales are actually going up at Simon's properties because they're adding all these entertainment venues and mixed use spaces and really doing a great job of attracting people in. And Simon's a they're targeting online retailers in the sense that places that only have online presence, Simon's saying, hey, why don't you open an exclusive retail location in one of our malls to boost your sales? Uh, Untuck It's a good example that I could think of. Uh, there's oh, Untuck yeah. It stores in some of Simon's malls, um, which is historically an, an online-only business. Um, and Simon was in the news today. I'll wrap it up after this. But um, Simon keeps getting bigger. They're um, taking advantage of the slowdown in retail by acquiring some of their struggling peers, uh, Taubman Center's has some of the most productive mall assets in the country, and Simon just announced they're buying them, or 80% of the company today, to kind of expand even further and bring its... It, Simon's the most financially flexible mall company in the world, and if there's anyone who could add value to, to a new portfolio of malls and bring them into the 21st century, it's Simon. Well, I mean, maybe <clears> that's <throat> just a good example of uh, one of the strongest getting stronger, but yeah, I mean, I've... I've uh... I've looked into Simon before and, and uh, agree with, with what you're saying there. Um, okay, let's take a look at the last company on the list here. Now, this is Store Capital, and this is uh, Store is an acronym for Single Tenant Operational Real Estate. So, Store Capital, the ticker here is STOR. Now, you say in the report here, this is one of the safest REITs of any kind, not just in the retail space. Tell us a little bit about why. Right. And I, um, I know I've mentioned Buffett already, but this is a. This is the only REIT that, that Berkshire owns in its portfolio directly in terms of just owning the stock. Uh-huh. Um, so, Store Capital is, they're a retail REIT, but they specialize in properties that fit a few basic characteristics. Either they're service-oriented businesses, um, think auto repair shops, things like that, that people have to physically go to, or they are discount-oriented businesses, or they're businesses that sell things people have to buy think like gas stations you can't really you know call amazon and fill your car with gas <laughs> um so that's why i say it's one of the safer ones they, these are properties that the tenants sign long term think 15 to 20 year leases with annual rent increases built right in and these are businesses that really have no risk of being disrupted by e-commerce and also are very little risk to being disrupted by recessions um Drugstores are a good example of a, a, a property that people have to buy from. Oh, yeah. uh, people still need their people still need their prescriptions, no matter how bad a recession is. Yeah, um, people people still need to put gas in their car if there's a recession. So these are very recession resistant businesses that also because of this lease structure where they're locked in for over a decade at a time, they don't store capital doesn't have to worry about what these tenants are whether they're going to renew their lease next year, or the following year, or whatever. They're, they're locked in. All they have to do is get a high-quality tenant in place and you know, enjoy year after year of worry-free income. And store. Um, one of their big differentiators is they require their tenants to provide property-level financials, 
So they know well in advance if a company is struggling or if one of their properties might become vacant and can take steps to remedy that much quicker than any of their other uh, retail REIT peers can. Wow. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here as I like to do, Matt. And I, and I I know that you like all four of these. Um, if we if we take all four of these, and I ask you to take the two that you like the most today of the four, what are the two that that you really like the most out of these four? Probably Simon and Saratage. Simon and Saratage. I like all, I like all I like all four. Um, store is obviously the best bet if you're if you're a risk adverse investor, um, but Seritage I think is a phenomenal value that's really being overlooked by the market, and Simon is trading at its 52 week low roughly, and if the, they, they just agreed to pay a 50 something percent premium for uh, Taubman, and if that tells you anything, it's that there's a lot of undervaluation going on in this space. So I think I think Simon's properties are worth a whole lot more than the market's giving him credit for, and that they're going to be around for years and years and years to come. And if anything, as these smaller regional malls and strip malls get shaken out, their market position is going to get even stronger. So if I had to pick two to buy today, it would be Saratage and Simon. All right. Well, great stuff as always, Matt. I know our listeners love being able to get some new investing ideas on their radar, particularly in this REIT space with those nice dividend yields that that so many are looking for. Uh, appreciate you going through those four uh, REIT ideas for us. Uh, before we continue, I want to remind listeners that if you're looking for more stock ideas and recommendations, make sure to check out our Stock Advisor service. You'll get recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every month, Best Buys Now, and a whole lot more. So just go to if.fool.com and we've got a special 50% discount for our listeners. Make sure to check it out at if.fool.com. All right, Matt, we're going to jump in real quick to another installment of the last stock you bought and why. Got a really nice email here from Vicus. Vicus, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but he writes in, says, I'm an absolute fan of the Industry Focus podcast, and I wanted to talk to you about the last share I bought, DocuSign. Love it, Vicus, already. You know I own that stock, and I love it. Vicus says, I recently visited a nearby Bank of America branch to help my sister open a bank account. All of the account signatures were automated by DocuSign. I did some digging to understand when Bank of America started using DocuSign, and the branch officials seemed to indicate that there was a rollout in the last few months. One of my worries with DocuSign's revenue was its strong exposure to the mortgage market. Its diversification into banking provides me with great comfort. Also, as someone in finance myself, I can tell you, if every signature in the financial services industry gets covered by DocuSign, that's a lot of signatures in SaaS revenue. Promptly went on to buy the shares. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Regards, Vicus. Vicus, thank you so much for that email. Uh, thanks for telling us your thinking behind why you bought DocuSign. I, I agree with what you said there. I just think it's the way of the future. It makes makes business a lot easier. And as you as you are aware, it seems you you got to sign something for everything nowadays. And if we can make it a little bit easier with DocuSign, we'll we win as consumers and we win as investors as well. So congratulations. Um, okay, Matt, let's go ahead and wrap this week up. We're going to talk about our ones to watch. What's the stock you're watching this coming week? I know I talk about it all the time, but my stock I'm watching is Green Dot, and there's a reason for it this time. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a reason first, for it every week, man. Don't worry. Well, about there that. is, but I'm and and my reason is not just because it's went down and it's a value. I don't. I normally don't have too much great news to report about Green Dot, but this week's an exception. All right, well, um, lay it on me. 
Green Dot's actually about up about 50% from since last time I talked about it. Um, and one of the big reasons is that Starboard Value, the big hedge fund, took a almost 10% ownership stake in it. Oh, nice. Um, there's, they specifically said there might they might push for changes within the company, including either a sale of some assets or an overall, you know, just an acquisition by somebody else. So it just shows that I'm not the only one who thinks Green Dot's <laughs> undervalued right now. Um, and if, 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 I mean, Starboard, they have a pretty good track record. So if they if they see something in Green Dot, then there must be something to it. And I think this banking as a service business is, really has a lot of future potential. So I'm glad to see that some moves are happening there. Well, that sounds like good news. I'm glad to hear it, and I appreciate you bringing it up. I, I don't hold anything against you. You could talk about Green Dot every week, and that would be okay with me, Matt. Just uh, remember, we have listeners to uh, to accommodate as well. And uh, so I'm just just speaking on behalf of them. You better be right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna revisit really quickly just my one to watch last week. If you remember, it was Chipotle. I just wanted to touch on this briefly because I was talking really about the digital sales growth. Uh, for the company, and they reported earnings look like a really good quarter. Uh, but the the number that I was watching was that digital sales growth. We saw growth of seventy eight percent there year over year. Represents now nineteen point six percent of total sales for the year. Digital sales of just north of one billion dollars, which was up ninety percent versus the prior year. So that's what I was watching with Chipotle. I just wanted to go ahead and let listeners know that's what came of the earnings release. Which I gotta say, I was pretty happy with that. Uh, but my one to watch this week, I'm watching Shopify. Uh, earnings come out on February 12th, so I believe that'll be on Wednesday. And I mean, you know, Shopify is is the e-commerce platform, but in e-commerce and helping uh, their merchants build out their businesses on Shopify, it, it's more than just building a website. Uh, the subscription solutions revenue for the business grew 37% last quarter. Um, and that that was driven primarily by growth in monthly recurring revenue, and that's really an attractive part of the business. But I also focus on the gross payments volume side of the business, the GPV, which is a a metric we follow with a lot of these payments companies. Um, last quarter, they recorded six point two billion dollars in gross payments volume, and the reason why that matters is because that's what's going through that Shopify uh, pay, the Shopify payments part of the business, and that actually is connected to Stripe. So, you know, we love PayPal and Square. Stripe is not a publicly traded company, but if you want exposure to something like a Stripe, you could look at Shopify and, and that could be a way to get it. Um, for me personally, I own shares of Shopify. Part of it is because of the payments uh, future I think the company has, but also just uh, what what Toby Lutke is doing with the business and, um, and, and the tailwinds in e commerce. Just seems like there's a lot to like about Shopify. So, looking forward to seeing how that earnings release comes out uh, on Wednesday. So, Matt, I think that's going to wrap it up for us this week. I appreciate you joining us again, as always. Yeah, always fun to be here. I'll see you guys next week in person. Yes, sir. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd behind the glass for making us sound good this week. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 